Good morning. Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of St. Albans. We're glad that you're here worshiping with us today, here or at home as well. Hopefully you've had a chance to look through our bulletin. You see that we have some exciting things uh, on the horizon. The one that I want to highlight right now is that this Thursday, Big Marv's food truck is coming here to the church from 4.30 to 6.30. We're going to have some tents set up outside. Um, it's going to be an awesome time. The menu is listed on the bottom of this flyer. We hope that you make an effort to come out and and, uh, and enjoy the, the opportunity to kind of fellowship together gather here at the church or just come by and take your food home with you, but at least stop and say hey to you, to your neighbors, and also maybe even invite your neighbors to come down. We hope this is a great outreach to the community. I'm excited about it. Uh, we're going to be here towards the tail end of that because of when I get off work, but we're excited to come up here and try Big Marv's food truck out for our first time back to West Virginia. Uh, I have some exciting news to share with you this morning uh, that comes on the tail end of a little bit of sad news. Uh, those of you probably remember back in the spring uh, when Miss Lewis passed away, uh, Susan Groscup uh, contacted me earlier this week and said, Nope. Anyway, I'll shout. Uh, so Miss Cruz died, and Susan Groscup contacted me and said that uh, she had something to give to the church that her parents wanted us uh, to have. And so I went to her house yesterday, and she presented uh, me with this, uh, which is a check from Edward Jones, and it's to First Presbyterian Church of St. Albans to the tune of $234,629.85. Uh, it's a huge gift that they thought so highly of this church and this place. Uh, it's sad that they have passed on, but it's a great gift to us. Uh, so right now what we want to do is I'm going to invite Laurie to come forward and just talk to you a little bit about how important that family was to the ministry here at First Pres St. Albans. Um, good morning. Um, uh, really speaking, well, I knew uh, Wanda and Bill, and also I'm real close with Susan, their daughter, one of their daughters. Um, but Sarah Kell, most of you know her, that um, is here in church. Um, she's an electrician, and she had a very special companion, uh, Dawn. He was also an electrician. But anyway, I want to read to you what Sarah wrote about Wanda and Bill, okay? <clears throat> and Sarah's not feeling well today, or she'd been up here doing this herself. <laughs> so, um, I met Bill and Wanda through our church. Bill was a union electrician also. Dawn and I did a lot of work at Bill and Wanda's house and would go out to eat once in a while. When I heard they donated money to the church, it's not surprising. Bill and Wanda were very kind, generous, and thoughtful. They loved our church and would attend regularly. But after Bill passed, it was hard for Wanda to attend. I always enjoyed stories of their 70 years of marriage, which started when Wanda was just 17, and Wanda left home to marry Bill. She would go with him when he would work out of town, that and they were rarely ever uh, apart in the evenings they were always together and she enjoyed the stories of their children grandchildren great-grandchildren and the pets that were part of their family too <clears throat> they were very proud of their daughters and grandchildren and enjoyed talking about them sarah treasured their visits because they always made you feel right at home <clears throat> 
I feel very blessed to have known them and had them in my life. Rest in peace, my dear friends. They are together dancing in heaven. And thank you for the donation to help our church carry on. Have a blessed week, everyone. Sarah. So we certainly want to reach out and talk to Susan and thank her for uh, her passion about this place as well as her recognition that her parents love this place as well. The session obviously will make a decision about how we use this funds, but we certainly want to make certain that we remember the family uh, in the years to come in a, in, a, in a great and powerful way. So we thank you all um, for being the members that love them, uh, that encourage them to love the Lord and love this place, and they remembered us fondly in their trust. With all that in mind, let us prepare our hearts to worship the living God. Amen. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes boasts in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. Come, let us join, let us um, worship the triune God. Let us stand and, and meditate on our gathering hymn, I Am the Bread of Life.
Jesus said, The peace I bring is a gift the world cannot give. May this peace, this gift from our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And also with you. The children of God fight against sin. They sob and mourn when they find themselves tempted to do evil. And if they fall, rise again with earnest and unfinged repentance. They do these things not by their own power, but the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from whom they can do nothing. Therefore, let us corporately confess our sin before God. Almighty God, we enter your presence confessing the things we try to conceal from you and the things we try to conceal from others. We confess the heartbreak, worry, and sorrow we have caused that makes it difficult for others to forgive us. The times we have made it easy for others to do wrong, the harm we have done that makes it hard for us to forgive ourselves. Lord, have mercy and forgive us through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Friends, hear this assurance of pardon that comes to us from the Old Testament. See, I have set your sins as far away as the east is from the west. Though your sins may be as scarlet, I have washed them white as snow. The good news in Christ coming to earth that He has separated us from our sin, that our old life is gone and a new life remain. So know that you have been forgiven and be at peace. And pray also for me, a sinner. Amen. Our first reading this morning comes from John chapter 6, verses 1 through 34. After After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw the large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of the other disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five loaves of barley uh, five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in this place, so they sat down, about five thousand in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. 
when the people saw the sign that had been done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. The next day the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw that there had been there had only been the boat one boat there. They also saw that Jesus had not gone into the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given the thanks. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, What sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from the heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. At this time, I invite the children forward for a children's sermon. <coughs> okay, what do I have here today? Bread. bread. And is there anything special about this bread? What's special about it? When do I use this kind of bread? Do you know? 
at communion, okay? So this is a piece of our bread from, from communion. And I, what do I typically do when I'm doing communion? Do you know what I do with the bread? Have you seen me do it? What do I do? Okay, awesome. Okay, so I take the bread and I break it and I say that this represents the body of Christ. I do it like this, right? And then I say, Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, right? That's what I say. So take, eat, take a piece. You want to buy it? You want to try it? All right, we'll try it together. What do you think it's going to taste like? Bread? Okay, let's see. Hmm. What do you think? You like it? Okay. What do you think? Yeah. Okay. So it's a decent tasting Jesus, right? So when we say that we have this, this bread represents Jesus, part of what Jesus is telling his disciples or getting ready to tell his disciples in the Bible is that he is the bread of life. So anybody that takes a bite of Jesus has life eternal. Now, does that make any sense? Do you want to eat Jesus no, right? That sounds weird, right? Don't you think that sounds weird? Okay, what do you like to eat? Vegetables, okay. Brown noser, good job. Fruit, oh man, you guys are great kids. What else do you like to eat? Candy? Ice cream, do you like cake? Yeah, a little bit, okay. So Jesus knew that people liked things like bread. Bread was something back then, as it is today, that gives people energy. It's like when we put gas in our car, it gives our car energy. Bread in our body, it's a strong carbohydrate, and it gives us energy and it allows us to do things. And so Jesus took something that was pretty common. It was pretty, it was pretty much something that people had on a regular basis, and he said, I am like this. I am like this thing. And so I'm going to sacrifice myself. And so every time that you break bread, which is another way that they used to say, have dinner with each other, you should give thanks because it reminds you that I have come down for you. So just like food is energy for your body, Jesus is energy for our soul. And as Presbyterians, what we believe happens when we take communion is that God gives us a little bit more forgiveness, that he makes us a little bit stronger in our faith and our spirit every time we take communion, which is why we do it once a month. And did you know we're allowed to take it every Sunday if we want to? That's what the Presbyterian Book of Order says. We can take it every Sunday because it's that important for us. But we just do it once a month here at First Press St. Albans as a reminder of how much energy God gives us. Okay, so we're going to thank God for his energy and for coming, and for saying that he is the bread of life. All right? Let's pray. Dear God, you rock, and we love you. And we're so glad you came to earth and told us you were the bread of life. That's hard to understand, but we're doing our best to make it make sense. Please help us see the world the way that you See the world. We love you. Amen. Do you want some more Jesus before you sit down? Yeah, okay. Take a big piece. Okay, there you go. We're going to continue where we left off, uh, where Adam left off in verse 35 and read through the end of the chapter. Hear God's holy word. 
And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in Him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Then the Judeans began to complain about Jesus because He said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. And they were saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can He, know, how can he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me. And I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Very truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors are the manna in the wilderness. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I give for life of the world is my flesh. The Judeans then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is the true food, and my blood is the true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate, and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. And he said these things while they were teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, This teaching is difficult. Who can possibly accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew the first who were the ones that did not believe, and who were the one that was going to and who was the one who would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. And because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. 
And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. May the Lord add blessing and understanding to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you for your story. We thank you, God, for the way that you interact with us in the form of story. And we thank you, Lord, for your spirit who guides and directs us in our understanding and application of the story. We ask God for your spirit's guidance with this story today. All this we say in the name of the Lord. Amen. We have a rule in our house um, about what is on the table. And that rule is, don't yuck my yum. Now, Miller and Mackenzie were forced to eat a spoonful of whatever they looked at and said, ooh, gross, or ooh, yuck. We made them eat a spoonful of it, right? Whether or not we were going to make them eat it on their plate or not, um, they were forced to eat what they thought was disgusting. Now, with the younger two, we have softened a little bit. Um, we still say, don't yuck my yum, but, and I asked permission to say this. Well, I didn't ask permission. I told her I was going to say this yesterday. Moria is our pickiest eater, and she often looks at food and just says, gross. And, and so if it's not chicken nuggets or Taco Bell or, you know, something like that, she wants no part of it. She's getting a little bit better, but not a lot better. And any of you that are a picky eater or have been around a picky eater, you know that's solely based on sight. It's not, it's not that you immediately have this, this taste aversion necessarily. It's something that with smells or sights or just our mind that says, don't, don't eat that. And psychologically, people would say that that's a leftover evolutionary trait um, for us to survive. We, we have this aversion to certain things that we think might cause us to not live. And there are also instances where we have cultural aversions. How many of you like to eat sushi? I love sushi, right? But 20 years ago, if you'd have told me that I was going to go to a restaurant and eat bait, I would have not ever tried that, right? But I love it now. I can't get enough of it. And I think that we probably all know the story about the, the misunderstanding in medieval times um, about tomatoes being poisonous, right? You know that story? They were eating off of pewter plates, and so the acid from the tomatoes interacted with that pewter, and that got them sick. But they were also classified as being the exact same thing as nightshade. And so some people still to this day have a natural psychological aversion, a gag reflex to the taste of tomatoes. Now, culturally, how many of you like to eat haggis? Anybody? No. Okay. If you do, you're not going to admit it. How about any of you that have Icelandic blood? Harkarl? Do you know what Harkarl is? Harkarl, and I have no idea how they found out what this is, but it's a poisonous snake that the Vikings would, would catch. It's not snake. A poisonous shark that the Vikings would catch, and they knew if they ate it right away, it would kill them. So what they would do is they would dig a trench and bury that under sand and gravel. They would let it sit for five to six months until it literally putrefied. They would dig it up. They still do this, by the way. If you go to Iceland, you can still get this food. They would dig it up and then hang it on wooden uh, posts for another month or so until that dried, and then they go and cut it, and then they eat it on a regular basis. I learned about that on the show on TV, The Most Disgusting Foods of the World, or something like that, right? But it's still something that people do to this day in Iceland. That's, they love it. I have no desire ever to try that food. And I'd love to know who took the time to figure out how many months it needed to be buried before you dug it up and hung it up to make it 
make it edible. How about possum? How many of you are possum eaters? No, no, are you serious? Wow. Oh, dear God in heaven. She's a possum eater. Okay, I've eaten alligator. My kids like alligator. I've had snake. How about snake eaters? Yeah, snake eaters. Raccoon? Two raccoon eaters. Okay, all right. They're keeping score at home. This is the next potluck may be the most gross food you have in St. Albans, right? Groundhog. My grandma called it whistle pig. She loved to eat groundhog, right? Imagine if your most respected teacher, whatever food you can think of that is just disgusting and abhorrent, if your most respected teacher suddenly tells you that in order to have eternal life, you have to eat that thing, how would you react to that, right? That's essentially what's happening in our text today. Essentially, these hearers of Jesus' words experience this. Jesus, believe it or not, is quite literally suggesting cannibalism as a true gift from heaven, the bread of life. Now, bear with me, because we've had 1,800 years of theology that tells us that that's not what was going on in the text. But I promise you, Jesus was talking about that very thing. You must consume my flesh, the words of Jesus. Now, in the lectionary, if we were doing the lectionary, John 6 usually takes about four weeks to work through. There's a lot that's going on here. This is pretty much, I think, Jesus' Hall of Fame section of Scripture. He feeds the crowds, he walks on water, he upsets the Judeans, he confuses the disciples, and he makes people gag. This is also one of Jesus' I am statements. It identifies Jesus and he proclaims who he is, I am the bread of life. The first section of the story today is about the feeding. And so it also helps us identify Jesus as well as his important incarnation as the one from heaven who was sent to feed. He's very similar to Moses. There's this connection between manna from heaven and Jesus being from from heaven. And he tests Philip, hey, how do you think we're going to feed these people? And Philip plays the part of the Hebrew children who question God. How is this possible to get bread from heaven? The other kind of connection to this section of text is from 2 Kings 4, where Elisha feeds 100 people with 20 barley loaves. And I think the lectionary recognizes all of this, so those are some of the readings that are connected. Um, Again, if we were doing this through the lectionary, to this first part of John's gospel. Jesus will feed many more people with much less. Not only is Jesus like, but even better than Moses, he's also like, but better than Elisha. And the people seem to react pretty positively. They identify Jesus as truly the prophet who is coming into the world. And this is a little bit reminiscent to what the Samaritans said in chapter 4 when they identified Jesus as the Savior of the world. And this has become a little problematic because what happens next is they want to make him king. But who are they? It's hard to distinguish here. It's, it's, they're either bad Jews um, because they were on their way to Passover, right? And so they're not actually attending Passover. They're, they're coming out to Jesus. They could be hungry or impoverished peasants. They're likely Samaritans because uh, Tiberius was a necropolis. Do you know what a, necro- a necropolis is? A city built on a cemetery. 
right? And so Jews can't live in a place like that. So Samaritans had no rules. So probably where Jesus is teaching in Tiberias, they could very likely be Samaritans that have a little bit of Jewish ancestry. Um, But we're not really sure who the they are. But Jesus sees that they want to make him king, and that's not his purpose. And so he retreats again to the mountain, symbolically going back to meet with God, similar to the way that Moses would go up a mountain. And then he walks on water. And that's an awesome story in and of itself. I kind of like the Markan version better than the Joannine version, but nonetheless, this kind of ties the two sides of the sea together. Now, in the day, and we've talked just a smidge about this, there were a great deal of superstitions about this body of water. So you have Jews essentially living on one side, Greeks kind of at the other side, Samaritans maybe essentially between them, geographically speaking. All of them had ideas about the power of water, right? Some of them, if they were Jewish, they had the idea of mitzvah, that running water could make things clean. That's how we got baptism. And so the Sea of Galilee has the Jordan River that feeds it and the Jordan River that empties it. So it is a cleaning body of water because it's a running lake, a running sea. The Samaritans had superstitions about there maybe possibly being gods of the sea. And that certainly was the case with some of the people on the other side of the sea, the Greeks and maybe other uh, Semitic people. And so when Jesus walks on water... One of the things that could be happening here theologically is that Jesus has power over any of the mysterious gods that people have superstitions about in those surrounding towns. The other thing that he does is he's literally making a bridge between all of those people. Okay, So by him walking on water, he is saying that he is able to walk amongst all the people who live on that land. He's coming to save the world. Okay, so that's kind of what's going on in that real little itty bitty section of scripture. That's kind of the theology that's packed in to this notion. And there's always friction amongst these people. There were storms that affected one side worse than the other. There was turbulence in their lives. These cultures, these peoples who are both wronged and both can become right. Who would have thought that there could be a place in the Middle East where two peoples fight over the same piece of land and water? 2,000 years later, we still have that same issue, right? In the morning, these crowds recognize that the disciples and Jesus are gone. They're not around. So the only thing left to do is cross the sea, and when they do that, they call Jesus rabbi, teacher. When did you come here? Why didn't we see you leave? How did that happen? And Jesus says, you're not looking for me because of those signs. You're looking for me to get filled up on bread. Yeah, but our history is that we should follow the one that gives manna from heaven. And this still doesn't rule out the Samaritans because if you remember, the Samaritans exist essentially because they were the left behind Jewish people when the diaspora came for the Babylonian exile or the Assyrian exile to the north. And then they intermarried with other peoples. They still had the belief of the Old Testament, the covenant law. They just weren't allowed to be called real Jews when the diaspora came back after the Babylonian exile. They couldn't worship at the same temple because they weren't pure. But they still believed that God provided manna from heaven. 
Essentially, Jesus' response is this. I am not a prophet like Moses because Moses didn't send the manna. My father sends the manna, the bread of life. Well, give us this bread. And Jesus says, I am this bread. And this is where the text, I think, gets really tricky. The Judeans, maybe this mixed crowd of people, they begin to argue with themselves, not with Jesus. And not with other people in the crowd necessarily. They argue amongst themselves in small groups. He can't be from heaven. We know this guy. This is Joseph's son. Jesus says, stop your arguing. No one can come to me unless drawn by my father. And this is where Calvin would get the notion of predestination. You can only come to the father or only come to Jesus if called by the father. You're only here because God drew you here. God did this to you. You're here having this conversation with me because God brought you to me. This is what he says in verse 49. Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give to you of this life is the world. The, give, <laughs> the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now many of us think that this text is understandable and easy to comprehend. I, I don't think quite that way. As I mentioned, we've, we've had a good 1,700 to 1,800 years of theological discourse of things called transubstantiation, the real presence of Christ, consubstantiation, mere remembrance, habitual traditions that we do on the first Sunday of the month. And I, I guarantee if I polled the audience, there would be more opinions about what communion is in this group of us that are gathered here or at home. We would have differing opinions about what we think happens at the table on Communion Sunday. And very few of us will get it compared to what Presbyterians actually believe happens here. Because we've heard it preached so many different ways by so many different people, we've had people tell us in small talk, this is what's going on. This is merely a memorial. No, this is the real presence of God. Our tradition is that we have bread and grape juice. Because anything else to us would be strange, right? We've been trained to think of this esoterically. It's a, it's a box type of thinking that we have. And none of us would openly say, I think, I won't speak for everybody here, my suspicion is that none of us would say that we're literally eating the body and blood of Jesus. And, and I, I don't know that none of us would say that. But my guess is, because all of us now at least admit that we're Protestants, we've moved away from that Catholic understanding. Sometimes we might think this is just a little snack before lunch. Sometimes that may be what we think communion is. I don't know. But I don't know that when we take communion, we put that much thought into what's happening when we take it. Not that we have to. But what the world says we're doing is called theophagy. Theo, deity, phagi, to eat or devour. We are eating the body of our God. People that aren't Christian understand what we do at communion table as theophagy. 
And what's confusing to them is what Jesus says in verse 53, that that's what we're doing. And having thoroughly confused and even angered these people, what he says to them next is even more offensive. Very truly, which is a way for us to say amen and amen, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of humanity and drink the blood of him, you do not have life in yourselves. The one chewing my flesh and drinking my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that up at the last day, for my flesh is the true food, and my blood is the true drink. The words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (laughs) It's pretty confusing, right? Now here's where the Jews get mad at Jesus. Eating the flesh of a human is forbidden. It's still forbidden for us. But it was literally one of the things that set them apart as an ancient people. And and they were named vultures and evildoers if they did that. Drinking blood was equally offensive. You shall not eat flesh with its life in it. That's Genesis 9. That's before we got the real rules. In Leviticus, when the real rules come in, you shall not eat any blood. You shall not eat flesh and drink blood. It goes as far as saying you should not boil a, a kid a goat, a baby goat, in its mother's milk because you need to have reverence for life. So when Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, man. And he doubles down and they say, I don't know if I can do this. And in case you're wondering if he's speaking metaphorically, the, the words that he uses in Greek say no. Estheo means eating. Trogo, which is the word that's there, means chomping or masticating. He is literally saying, you must chew my flesh. Verses 60 through 66 are almost as troubling. And he says, are you offended? Are you bothered by my words? I'm not going to soften my delivery. I'm not going to speak any more plainly than this. I am the bread of life, and the Spirit gives life. And what you see is the Son of Man ascending. What if you saw the Son of Man ascending to where He came from? What if you actually got to witness me going back up to heaven? I'm not trying to convince you of anything this morning. Remember the title of the sermon, or the hard words of Jesus, part two. These are hard sayings. And we see that they were hard sayings back then because we also see that disciples left, never to return to him again. And I think probably what they were saying is, this is too much Greek. He's just repeating the stories that he heard about the Greek god Dionysus. Do you know your mythology about Dionysus? It's often been accused that Jesus was trying to replicate that story. You have to literally eat that God to receive life. And so they say, that's just, I can get with a reform, I can get with some changes, but my Judaism just won't let me get to be that place where I'm just like these Greek people. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to attempt understanding this. My mind is made up. And they left, convinced of their own opinion, missing out on a true connection with God. So, What is happening in the Eucharist? I've said that debates over transubstantiation and real presence 
are, are far, far in the future as much as they are in the past. It's something that still separates people on Sunday mornings. But the Johannine community is wrestling with this question already in the first century. The fourth gospel leaves no room for some kind of metaphorical or spiritualized understanding. They are indeed munching flesh. And then Jesus says, The one chewing my flesh and drinking my blood abides in me and I in him. Now that word abide, which is manan, appears dozens of times in the fourth gospel. And that's, that's kind of where we lay our hat as Presbyterians. That we are abiding with God in the Eucharist. That God is abiding with us. No book of the New Testament describes the relationship between the Lord and his followers with greater intimacy than the book of John. And I think psychologically it's fitting for a gospel which stresses the abidingment, the mutual indwelling. The Eucharist is about integration. It's the taking in of the revered leader's self into one's own self. If you dream that you're eating something, it often represents an advance of your ego, your own ego, provided that the person eats or appropriates whatever the food represents. So if you dream you're eating popcorn, you need to think about maybe growing corn, or you're thinking about harvest, or you're thinking about things like that. In mysticism, taste represents an instrument of interior perception. So spiritual taste, one perceives the true nature and reality if what is taken into the self. There are now and always have been many spiritualities for people to consume, many breads, many hunger stoppers. And much like our society, we have many historically consumed spiritual foods that are not necessarily always good for humanity. And I think that this is what should be part of our intimacy with this God who abides in us. I think that God that abides in us has come to play with us, to tease us, to confuse us, to expand our minds, to make us think. And I think we must continuously be nourished with this bread of life. We must take the food and drink that is the message of the person Jesus Christ and feed on him with our hearts by faith. We must openly celebrate our new lives for we are God's children. And I think we have great work to accomplish as we walk the streets of the world, fearful of the world changing around us, yet hungry for something spiritually new. I think our work is to let the Eucharist give us strength, not to give speeches about righteous living and condemnation of those who don't eat the way that we eat. Let's not yuck Christ's yum. Instead, let's be people completely changed and altered by a spiritual renewal. And let's blanket the community with God's love of message, God's message of love and peace and grace. And then maybe they'll want to try a piece of Jesus with us. So let's abide together. Don't yuck God's yum. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen and amen. Now let us stand and declare what it is that we believe in the recitation of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. It's now time for us to receive the gifts and tithes that we represent, re- represent to the Lord, the blessings that He has given to us in this life. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you so much for the many gifts and blessings that you've given us in this life. God, as we turn a portion of these gifts to you now, we ask that you give us your wisdom and your courage to use them in a manner which you see fit. 
All this we ask in the name of your Son. Amen. You may be seated. I have some news to share with you this morning. Uh, Peggy Young has been placed on hospice care, um, and she was taken to the Hubbard House, I think, yesterday. And then uh, this morning this morning at 7, I was told she's going to stay at the Hubbard House, and then at about 8.30 or 9, uh, Andy let me know that the doctor has changed that, and so they're going to get her comfortable there and then allow her to come back home to Babette's house. Um, but... They, uh, they'd also said when I visited with her on Thursday that they'd love to have people come and, and help her laugh. So uh, you can talk to some of the folks on the caring committee about that to get Babette's contact information. Yes, Kathy. Room 18. Yeah, okay, so she's in room 18. We're not sure how long she's going to be there. The last thing that Andy said is that she may come back to Babette's this evening. Uh, which is, again, a change from what I got earlier this morning. But we'll find out, and we'll pass that information. Yeah, we'll pass that on as quickly as we can. Uh, Also, we have a few people in the church who are going to undergo surgery uh, in the weeks to come. Um, And we'll learn more about that, um, but we want to to provide prayer and concern for those who are anticipating that to take place. Uh, Some of you are also awaiting test results to come back, and so... A lot of hurt exists in our community, um, so we'll, we'll make sure that we think through that as we lift our prayer concerns to our Lord and to our King. With that thought in mind, let us, let us bind our hearts together as we lift our petitions to our leader. Holy and gracious God, we thank you so much for everything that you have granted us in this life. We thank you, Lord, for friendships. We thank you, Lord, for connections. We thank you, Lord, for this, our place, our house of worship. We thank you, Lord, for families, for those connections. Lord, we thank you for this gift of a country where we live and can worship freely. We thank you, Lord, most importantly, for the gift of your Son, who opened the door for those of us who are Gentiles to be part of your covenant love. We thank you for Christ's message that we are drawn to you through him. Lord, while we don't always understand everything that Jesus said or how to apply it to our lives, we thank you, God, for your grace that you extend to us. God, because we are a community of believers, a community of faith, a community of friends and family, we lift to you, Lord, those who are grieving and mourning. We praise the names of those saints who have gone before us, upon whose shoulders we stand. We thank you, Lord, for the Cruz family. We thank you, Lord, not only for the gift of love, the gift of charity, we thank you, Lord, for the gift of laughter that they brought to this place. We also thank you for Peggy Young. We thank you, Lord, for the tenacity in which she served you in this place, bringing her children to Sunday worship every Sunday, being a Sunday school teacher, a Girl Scout leader, all the gifts that you gave her that she gave to others. Lord, as she is drawing towards the end of her life here on earth, we ask, God, that you would allow us to be the saints that surround her here as she awaits to be surrounded by saints in your glory. Holy God, we pray for those who are meeting with surgeons this week, the weeks to come. We pray, God, that you would 
ease their minds, give them comfort, give them peace. Allow them to rest in the knowledge that you are the great physician. We're thankful, God, for doctors and nurses and caregivers and therapists who have answered the call to the ministry of healing. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you touch their minds and touch their hearts. We ask, God, that you would use those minds and hearts and hands with love and compassion for those of us, our beloved community, who will undergo treatment in the weeks to come. We're thankful, Lord, for the staff of the church. We thank you, Lord, for the volunteers, the members, the friends, whoever gathers in this place, the children and the youth who are taught the love of your dear name. We love this church, Lord, and we thank you for calling us to be your people here. We thank you also, Lord, for our country. We thank you for the men and women who have fought historically to keep us free. We pray, God, for one day where they do not have to fight We pray, Lord, for a day where we can beat our swords into plowshares. And Lord, we ask that you would give us that peace on earth. Be with the leaders of warring nations that they would seek peaceful solutions so that those people can come home and have an opportunity to worship in their house of worship, in their community of faith, with their friends and their neighbors, their family. Pray for our president and the leader of our nation, senators, congresspeople. Pray for our state and local leaders. Pray for our whoever's governing over us, that you would be patient with them as they listen to your still small voice. We pray for the neighbors of our church, that we may be a beacon of faith and hope and love to them. We pray for those who are seated to our right and to our left, in front of us and behind us. In the stillness of this moment, Lord, we pray for ourselves. God, we thank you for the gift of kinship, of friendship, of love amongst fellow believers. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us that gift. We thank you that that gift came because your son came to earth and he showed us how to live. And he taught us also to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Please stand and meditate on the words of our final hymn, Christ Be Beside Me.
John 6 is one of the texts that I usually open with when I'm having a conversation with a friend who says that they are a biblical literist. And I say, turn with me then to John 6. Let us read this together and tell me what it is that you think Jesus is saying here. And almost immediately, all my friends that are biblical literists say, well, that's not exactly what he's saying. There's interpretation here. I'm like, well, if there's interpretation here, there's interpretation in the rest of the book, on it too, right? And so I think it's a great place for us to come together in safety, to worship together and struggle with what the words of Christ mean for us in community, mean for us personally, and mean for our entire faith. I think that's what we're called to do every Sunday morning. And regardless of what it is you think about what happens at communion or what you think about my sermon today, the, the grace of Christ covers all of us, right? I could be 100% wrong in everything that I said today, and God still loves me, daggone it, and that's a great gift. And I think that when I take communion alongside you, my sisters and brothers, that we get that grace that God intended for us to have, a grace that then sends us into the world. I'm thankful for each of you that come to receive that grace from Christ and let us now be people who take that Christ wherever we live and dwell and work and play. Now receive the blessing of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. May it be with us all until we meet again either here or His glorious kingdom come. Amen and amen. Happy Sunday.